0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the happiest place on earth where you're happy is
1: everywhere, anywhere.
2: Disney World may be the happiest place on earth for visitors, but the company itself is not so happy with Florida's governor ending its ability to govern its 25,000 acre resort. So Disney is suing Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, alleging he orchestrated a targeted campaign of government retaliation as punishment for Disney's protected speech opposing Florida's don't-say-gay law. DeSantis says the lawsuit is political.
3: They've been treated much different than Universal, SeaWorld, and all these other places. And so they're upset because they're actually having to live by the same rules as everybody else, they don't want to have to pay the same taxes as everybody else.
2: But in the lawsuit, Disney points to DeSantis's memoir where he described the bill against Disney and said, quote, Disney had clearly crossed a line in support of indoctrinating very young school children in woke politics. And also his many public statements against Disney, like this on April 6th.
3: They are not superior to the people of Florida. And so come hell or high water, we're going to make sure that that policy of Florida carries the day. And so they can keep trying to do things. uh, But ultimately, we're going to win on every single issue involving Disney. I can tell you that.
2: DeSantis has also speculated publicly about what other actions he might take to punish Disney.
3: And now people are like, what should we do with this land? People have said, maybe create a state park, maybe try to do more amusement uh, parks. Someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? I mean, I just think that the, the possibilities are endless.
2: My guest is Leslie Kendrick, director of the Center for the First Amendment at the University of Virginia School of Law. Tell us a little about Disney's lawsuit against DeSantis.
1: So Disney's recently filed suit against DeSantis on a number of different grounds, contracts clause, due process, the takings clause. And what's gotten the most attention are First Amendment claims arguing that Florida laws that were passed at DeSantis's behest violate the company's First Amendment rights because they are essentially retaliation for Disney expressing a view about another piece of legislation, House Bill 1557, which is often known as the Don't Say Gay Act, about regulating educators in their presentation of material about same-sex orientation. So this is a claim that essentially that the steps that DeSantis and the legislature have taken since Disney did that amount to a First Amendment violation of Disney's right to free speech.
2: Desantis's tough talk, talk toward Disney, is cited throughout the lawsuit, including 18 quotes referring to some form of woke Disney. Is that the strongest part of their lawsuit, what he said himself?
1: So, as you know, all of this started more than a year ago when Disney first made the statements about House Bill 1557, and DeSantis was critical of them, saying, that they had crossed the line in their criticism of the law. And the complaint does include many statements by DeSantis and also by legislators in Florida. And just to be clear, statements that amounted to just criticism of Disney wouldn't create the same issues. The reason the statements are important in the context of this lawsuit is that they argue to the motive or purpose of the specific legal actions that the legislature took with regard to Disney's development district there around Orlando. The argument is that these statements show that this action was taken not for some neutral business reason, but precisely because of and out of retaliation for Disney's speech about the Don't Say Gay bill.
2: Randy Fine, a Republican who advanced the bill, at that time said, you kick the hornet's nest, things come up. And I will say this. You got me on one thing. This bill does target one company. It targets the Walt Disney Company. Is it targeting Walt Disney enough or does that targeting have to be in retaliation for what Disney said?
1: Well, this gets to a larger question in law of how we determine what the motivation or reason for a law was particularly in the context of a multi-member body like a legislature. And the Supreme Court has spoken to that numerous times. So one thing cited in the complaint is a precedent from equal protection doctrine that suggests you have to look at the structure of the law to help to flush out its purpose. And here, this law was passed under circumstances that are very different from the customary way that the Florida legislature addresses development districts like this. And of course, there are about 1,800 development districts like this around the state. More recently, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case involving another part of the First Amendment, the Free Exercise Clause, the court found that an entire process had been tainted by basically the remarks of one or two members of the first governing body that had addressed the problem and suggested that that was enough to discover a discriminatory purpose. So they've said a lot of different things about this. And there are cases within the free speech doctrine too that suggest the timing of an action, the circumstances of an action, all go toward the reason that it was done.
2: Can you explain what Disney would have to prove in its lawsuit?
1: Yeah, so what Disney is alleging is that it has enjoyed a special relationship with the state of Florida dating back to 1967 with the creation of the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which is the area including the Disney Parks, Walt Disney World, and all around there that enabled Disney to develop that property but at the same time imposed obligations, Disney is responsible for some basic services there, electricity and water, so forth, and the improvement of it, including you know hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure. Disney's argument is that this relationship has been changed by the legislature at DeSantis' behest because of Disney's exercise of its First Amendment rights, its expression of opposition to... House Bill 1557. What they need to show is that that action was taken because of their exercise of First Amendment rights. Essentially, they need to show a close enough connection between the actions taken the laws passed to dissolve the development district and reincorporate it under the power of the governor's office. Between that and the reasons that the governor and others had stated contemporaneously in lots of different venues for why they were taking that kind of action. So it seems to a
2: casual observer, and I'll put myself in that position, that DeSantis has said a lot about why he was doing it and about getting back at Disney, putting Disney in its place. Is that enough if he wants to put Disney in its place, or does it have to be in retaliation for what Disney said. I mean, the whole thing started after that law and Disney's opposition to it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the basic idea in First Amendment law is that there are all sorts of reasons that the government could reconfigure a special relationship that it has with a private citizen. We don't have claims of a right to be a public employee or to enjoy a certain public benefit. And the government can reconfigure those relationships for a lot of different reasons. But what it can't do is do that. In response to or because of an exercise of protected speech by the beneficiary. So, you can't take away someone's job as a public university professor because they're a communist, for example. That's the takeaway from the McCarthy era. So, here we have a much stronger record than we usually have of lawmakers taking action in response to an exercise of protected expression. A lot of times, these sorts of actions. Occur kind of sub Rosa. You know, a government employee expresses support for their boss's political opponent and they're quietly demoted or fired. And the government doesn't want to call attention to the fact that that's what it's doing. Here, part of the reason, I think, for the action was also to be able to tout the action, to say, we are taking action against woke Disney because they're woke Disney. So you know, a court's going to have to look at all of this, but it's a much different kind of record than you often have when someone's asserting that adverse action has been taken against them because of their exercise of their First Amendment rights.
2: The governor's spokesman said that his office was unaware of any legal right that allows a company to operate its own government or maintain special privileges. That's a reference to the decades-old district that's home to Disney World. But isn't that beside the point? That's not really the issue here, whether or not Disney has a right to that.
1: That's right. It's beside the issue in the First Amendment claim, because although the government could revisit the relationship with Disney and the existence and conditions of the Reedy Creek Improvement District for all sorts of different reasons, the First Amendment and First Amendment law holds that they can't do it out of response to Disney's exercise of their protective expression. The same way that you couldn't fire a government employee for speech outside of work on a matter of public concern, except in you know very, very narrow circumstances, there's going to be a very high bar to meet for that. Uh, the same way that you couldn't revoke a contract with, there's a case from the 90s involving a truck service that had a contract with the city, and they're taken off the list of contractors of of available towing companies in response to some protected speech. That's not okay, right? So the law is very clear that even if what we're talking about is a special relationship, First Amendment law says you can't modify that simply in response to uh, protected expression.
2: DeSantis and his allies have characterized their actions as, you know, putting Disney on a level playing field with other theme park operators, but... Universal Orlando, SeaWorld, and Busch Gardens and Legoland do not have oversight boards controlled by the governor. Does that factor in here?
1: Right. There are different aspects to this. One is putting them on a level playing field is not permissible if the reason that it's being done is because of protected speech. Even if it reduces Disney to the same status as others, that's not okay if the reason their benefits are being taken away is because of exercise of protected expression. But beyond that, there are factual questions here as to whether it's even true that this action puts Disney in the same situation as other similar enterprises. And to the extent that the actions taken do not do that, That can be itself further evidence that this action was punitive and retaliatory.
2: What kind of defense do you think DeSantis would be able to raise in the Disney suit?
1: Well, I think there'll be a couple different tacks. One will be to try to portray this action is neutral. You already see that in some of the statements that have been made. And to try to draw on strands within the doctrine that are the most hospitable to claims, that there's some degree of discretion that government actors have. There are a lot of precedents that they would have to work around in that regard. You know, the other thing is just sometimes big picture issues, high profile issues like this, cause courts to rethink relationships, and they might be arguing that the relationship between government provision of benefits and the speech of private actors. It's time to rethink that. That would be a huge, a huge move if they were to do that. It may be that they'll stick more toward arguing on the fact that this is not a First Amendment violation.
2: Um, With Discovery, Disney has the opportunity to look for more kinds of evidence to build its case, like perhaps memos between the governor and his staff, things like that? I mean, they could depose the governor, right?
1: Sure. So, you know, the scope of discovery will be determined by the district court um, as this case starts to wind its way through the system. But it, discovery typically does provide more insight into the actions and conversations that were happening behind the scenes. And part of what Disney might be trying to establish here is that there are two different specific acts of the legislature that they're taking issue with, that this is part of a larger effort to cut Disney off at the knees in whatever way possible, kind of a, a larger attempt to think about how do we get back at Disney? You know, that would mean that they're focusing not just on what was said in regard to these specific bills, but what was said around the bills about how are we going to address this new Disney problem. And that could mean discovery that has somewhat of a wider scope. What is Disney
2: seeking if it wins?
1: Disney would like both of the specific laws that were passed that affected it to be declared unconstitutional and to enjoin the enforcement of those acts. So the first of those back last year provided that any development. District that had been incorporated before the Florida Constitution of 1968 and had not been reincorporated since then would be dissolved as of uh, June of this coming year, June of 2023. There were six districts in all of Florida that that was true of, Disney being by far the most prominent one. And then the second bill was directed specifically at Disney asserting control over their. District. So they would like both of those voided and essentially would like to be returned to status quo ante to the contract terms that had existed for Reedy Creek before all this began.
2: In conclusion, how strong a case does Disney have?
1: On existing case law, based on the complaint, it seems that Disney has a very strong case that adverse action was taken against the corporation in response to protected expression that was critical of the existing government. And Disney seems to have an unusually thick record of statements already, public statements, to help establish that.
2: Thanks so much, Leslie. That's Leslie Kendrick, Director of the Center for the First Amendment at the University of Virginia Law School. unusual twist, the North Carolina Supreme Court reversed itself in a redistricting ruling that could scuttle a major U.S. Supreme Court elections case. It's a highly watched case involving the so-called independent state legislature theory, which would oust state judges and other officials from long-standing roles in shaping the rules for federal elections. But now the North Carolina Supreme Court has overruled its 2022 decision that the Supreme Court has been reviewing. Why did it reverse itself? Because in last year's election, Republicans gained control of the state's highest court. And they've backed a Republican-drawn congressional map, reversing the decision that the Democratic majority had made in 2022. Here to help us sort it all out is elections law expert Richard Brafault, a professor at Columbia Law School. How rare is it and stunning to see a state Supreme Court reverse itself after an election that changed the political makeup of the court?
3: It is very rare and it is very stunning for a court to do this when nothing else changed. And you sometimes see courts changing their positions on something when maybe new facts developed or maybe new background law changed or something. But this is literally within the space of a few months. The North Carolina Supreme Court reversed itself on really sort of two major voting issues, the gerrymandering case, but also a case involving a statute involving voter ID. These were decisions that the court had basically made or reaffirmed in December of 2022. And now in April of 2023, they've changed their minds because the membership of the court changed.
2: Let's talk first about the decision on the congressional maps. What did the court say? Did it explain why it was reversing itself?
3: The court basically says, as the U.S. Supreme Court had said, that partisan gerrymandering is non-justiciable. That is, there's nothing in the state constitution that addresses it, and there are no standards that the court could develop that would allow them to consistently review and strike down plans as gerrymanders without making policy judgments inappropriate for courts. The court very much modeled itself after what the U.S. Supreme Court had done in the case that also came out of North Carolina, a case called Rucho, which the U.S. Supreme Court decided four years ago. Now, this case came up under the North Carolina Constitution and its own particular provisions dealing with elections and free speech and equal protection. But the court said, We think that the U.S. Supreme Court, in its interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, basically set the standard that we should follow in interpreting our own Constitution on these issues, and that the U.S. Supreme Court was right to say that they were not. Standards that a court could enforce here. We don't think there are standards that a court could enforce here under the state constitution.
2: Before we go any further, explain the situation with the maps, how the court's ruling changed the maps.
3: What had happened is, of course, the North Carolina legislature had passed maps that dealt with both the state legislature and the congressional delegation for after the 2020 census. Those were challenged in both federal court and also in the North Carolina courts the North Carolina courts concluded in the first go-round that these were partisan gerrymanders in violation of the state constitution. They concluded that the state constitution prohibited that. They basically sent it back to the legislature, but they also said that they were appointing the judges to be special masters to review the plans the legislature produced, The special masters appointed experts, and ultimately over the course of two years, 2021-2022, new maps were approved for the North Carolina legislature and for the North Carolina congressional delegation. The North Carolina legislature is still dominated by Republicans under the new maps as well as the old maps, but the North Carolina congressional delegation in the elections that were held in 2022 under the court-ordered maps, I think basically split evenly. I think it's with seven Republicans, seven Democrats, whereas people basically thought that under the map that was initially adopted by the legislature, it was likely to be 10 Republicans.
2: Does this decision give Republican lawmakers basically free reign to draw the state legislative and congressional maps as they
3: want to? Pretty much. I mean, they would still have to abide by one person, one vote, and they would still have to avoid anything that could be accused of being intentional racial discrimination. But in terms of partisan gerrymandering, yes, there would be no constraint.
2: Does this case advance that so-called independent state legislature theory?
3: It kind of eliminates the problem, which is the independent state legislature theory was a theory of federal constitutional law, with the idea being that under the federal constitution, only a state legislature can draw up congressional districts. And the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision that said that under the state constitution, the legislature had violated the state constitution even with respect to the congressional districts, that is currently actually before the U.S. Supreme Court on a challenge that says a court applying its state constitution cannot take this away from the state legislature. So I guess you could say what the North Carolina court just did is consistent with the independent state legislature theory, but it wasn't required by it because the North Carolina Supreme Court is saying under our constitution, North Carolina's constitution, the courts just have no role here. It'd be interesting to see what the U.S. Supreme Court does now, but right now it does not appear that they have a case that they can review. They do have the case. They did hear oral argument on this question of whether or not the North Carolina Supreme Court, the old North Carolina Supreme Court, violated the U.S. Constitution. By knocking down the maps the state legislature had drawn, but now the current North Carolina Supreme Court says they 've vacated that decision, the one that 's on review before the supreme Court so it 's not clear what the u.s Supreme Court will do now, whether they will continue to make a decision on the theory that this is a question that could come up again in another state or whether they will conclude that they really don 't have a case in front of them anymore
2: if they decide not if the Supreme Court decides not to hear the case, does that send a bad message to state courts that You can avoid having the Supreme Court review Uh, you.
3: I don't know that it sends a message one way or the other. I think it just postpones the ultimate decision. There are state courts that are continuing to do this. Now, the Alaska Supreme Court just the week before concluded that gerrymandering violates the Alaska Constitution – Of course, Alaska has only one congressional seat, so there was no federal constitutional issue with respect to drawing the congressional line. So that's not really a factor. But the Alaska Supreme Court now joins a handful of other state Supreme Courts in saying that gerrymandering violates their constitution. North Carolina now has just withdrawn from that group and basically says that because there is no specific provision in the North Carolina constitution that addresses gerrymandering, the courts just simply have no right to address it.
2: The uh, majority opinion said this case is not about partisan politics, but rather about realigning the proper roles of the judicial and legislative branches. Did its opinion support that?
3: The reasoning was pretty straightforward. And it's pretty much the same reasoning that the U.S. Supreme Court gave in its decision not to address partisan gerrymandering in a case decided four years ago called Rucho. So, you know, on its face... It's kind of a neutral decision. I mean, what makes it seem partisan is it was the result of a partisan election in which, in effect, two Democratic judges on the North Carolina Supreme Court were replaced by two Republican judges. And that led to a change in the court's uh, approach to an important constitutional question.
2: Morphe Harper which you mentioned is before the Supreme Court, and a lot of right. people were looking at it. Some people with fear that the Supreme Court would endorse this independent state legislature theory. Do you think that the Supreme Court will take this opportunity to avoid deciding that case?
3: It's hard to tell, but it's, it's kind of hard to see how they're able to go forward with the case. The North Carolina Supreme Court says they have vacated the decision that is being challenged in the Supreme Court. So it's not clear what there is for the Supreme Court to do. It's possible the court will say, well, we've heard the arguments and this kind of issue may come up in another state. And so we will make a decision to give guidance in other states. It's also possible that they'll wait for a case that will come from another state, which is still a live case, and you know, hold off in deciding this question until it comes back to them.
2: Let's talk about the other decisions. And one was about the voter ID laws that North Carolina did a reversal on.
3: Yes. So North Carolina has been sort of struggling with this question of what kind of voter ID they can require voters to have. And I think the question of whether or not voters can be required to present ID was settled by the U.S. Supreme Court about 15 years ago. But there's been a lot of fighting as to exactly what kind of ID they can require. How limited can it be if it's a photo ID what sources count and what do you do with people who don't have ID and how do you help you know what what alternatives do you provide for people who don't have ID the North Carolina legislature passed a law in the early 2010s that the courts struck down on the theory that it was racially motivated that the law was really purposely designed in terms of the specific kinds of ID that counted and didn't count to have a a particular impact on black voters. And so that was struck down. The state then went back and actually the voters in North Carolina approved a constitutional amendment authorizing voter ID, although again, they didn't spell out exactly what kind of voter ID would count. The legislature then went and passed another voter ID law, which was, from the perspective of the legislature, more generous. You had more sources of ID that would count more alternatives for people who didn't have ID. It was still challenged as having a disparate racial impact That's the case that was going through the North Carolina court system. I think the lowest court said it was fine. Intermediate Court of Appeal said no, we think that there's a disparate racial impact. The North Carolina Supreme Court said no, we think it's fine. And in the course of doing it, they basically, to some extent, toughened up on the standards, at least in North Carolina that uh, voters would have to show, actually any plaintiff would have to show, to show something is racially discriminatory. And they really basically kind of heightened the standard of proving that something was, was adopted with discriminatory intent. And they basically said there's just the fact that an earlier version of this was adopted for a discriminatory purpose, and the fact that North Carolina has had a long history of racial discrimination, that's kind of irrelevant to reviewing this particular law. And in a
2: triple, really a triple blow here, it reversed a lower court ruling about the right to vote for those who are convicted of felonies?
3: That's right. So again, many states deny the right to vote for those who are convicted of a felony. But there are gradations in terms of, you know, who's actually barred from voting. Most states would bar somebody who's currently serving their sentence. But the question has come up about what if somebody is on parole or has been released on probation, and is actually not, is still within, you know, within the court system, but is not actually in prison. And the lower courts in North Carolina had basically said that the North Carolina law banning felons from voting did not apply to people who were no longer incarcerated. The state Supreme Court reversed that and said it would continue to apply to people who are on probation or people who are on parole until the end point of their sentences.
2: Thanks so much, Rich. It's always a pleasure to have you on. That's Professor Richard Brefault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast law. I'm June Grosso, and you're
0: listening to Bloomberg.